It's been my custom at the end of every chapter that I take a couple weeks on and teach on something different. And so we just finished Luke chapter 17. I thought I would take a break for a couple weeks. And I thought I would bring to you this evening uh, something that's just been on my mind for the last month or so. And like I said already, I don't want you to check out thinking, oh, this is going to be a sermon about marriage and that does not relate to me. I even considered naming it something different so that when I sent the email out to everybody, there weren't single people saying, oh, you know what, I'm going to skip this week because I don't want to hear a sermon on marriage. But I want to tell you there is something wonderful here that you need to hear. So there are two primary forms of teaching when we approach a text. I'm giving you college-level stuff right here, okay? Every sermon you hear is either going to fall into the one or the other, and I'm talking about inductive and deductive forms of reasoning. Okay? So the inductive is my normal pattern of preaching, where we work our way through a text, and we make observations, and we examine a passage, and we get to the end of the passage, and we discover the point of the text. That is inductive teaching. So, we get to the end of a passage and we discover we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. That's like the big idea we just discovered as we work through all of those verses. Or, because Jesus is coming again, this is how we ought to live. So that's the conclusion we made after studying all of those verses. An inductive study. Deductive is where a truth claim or a hypothesis is put up front, and then the time of study is spent proving that idea. So if I was to preach on the Trinity and say God is triune, and this verse proves it, and this verse proves it, and this verse proves it, that is deductive teaching. So, inductive works to discover the truth, and deductive begins with the truth, and then works towards proving it. And so, what I want to present to you today is a deductive sermon. I am going to start out with a big, surprising, sweeping statement that is a truth statement, and I will spend the remaining time proving its validity. So, that's giving you that up front. And the big idea I want to present is this. Here's the big idea that I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes proving, okay? Marriage is a picture of why God made the universe and everything in it. Okay? The covenant of marriage is a picture or an illustration or a type or a portrayal meant to communicate why God made everything. Not marriage itself, but marriage as a picture. Okay? So why does Saturn exist? Why are there sea forces? Mountain lions, dragonflies, black holes, white blood cells, 
Everything that is visible and invisible, why does it exist? Now, a good theological answer might be, it all exists for the glory of God. God made it for his glory. And that would be a very good answer. That's what the confessions teach. That's what the catechisms teach. That everything exists for the glory of God. But what has God done that is the greatest demonstration of his glory? Was it that he made the Himalayas? Was it that he made the Great Barrier Reef? Or birds? Or stars? Or volcanoes? Are those the greatest symbols of the glory of God that give him the most praise? Or did God do something more profound, more surprising, more wonderful, more shocking, more unbelievable, and more mind-blowing that is to be the centerpiece for his receiving glory? I want to propose that everything exists for the glory of God, but there is one particular purpose in the plan of God that is to bring him glory that far surpasses any other thing. This aspect of the plan of God becomes the centerpiece of heavenly worship now and forever. And marriage is an illustration of that. I'm laboring the point here because I don't want you to miss it. Everything that exists, whether seen or unseen, was brought together by the hand of God for one grand purpose, and that purpose is depicted in the human covenant of marriage. Now, this is a big claim. And so using the principles of deduction, I want to spend the remainder of our time arguing that it is absolutely true. Human marriage is not a social construct, nor is it a civil arrangement devised by man to promote a safe and moral society. I will even argue that marriage is not solely designed for the need of companionship, nor for the purpose of procreation. Rather, marriage is meant to point us to the very reason that everything exists. The glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ in covenant with a redeemed people whom he will love, cherish, and enjoy forever. Now, it's one thing to make a big, bold claim. It's another to prove it. My main text is found in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Paul writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's going to be my main text. This was the text that gave me the desire on Wednesday night when we had our Bible study. I want to teach on this. 
And if you weren't there on Wednesday nights, you're not that familiar with Ephesians, I'm going to give you the super short version. Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he describes to them the plan for them in Jesus Christ. And he tells them in chapter 1 that they were chosen before the foundation of the world. They were loved, they were predestined, they were adopted. He tells them in chapter 2, it's not because they were so cute and lovable, or it's not because they had such great faith, but they were dead in their sins. They were following the course of this world. They were dead and deceived, but God came and he made them alive, and he joined them to Christ, and this action by God is called grace, and it's not something they deserve, and it's not something they have earned. Chapter 3, he explains that God brought or Christ brings reconciliation between us and God, and not only that, he reconciles us to one another, so that even enemies, natural-born enemies who are hostile to each other, when they become reconciled to God and they become part of uh, God's people, they become reconciled to each other. So the Jew and the Gentile no longer have racial barriers, they no, no longer have religious barriers, they are one in Christ. So that's the first half of the book. It's about what God has done in Christ for you. And then in chapter 4, there is a shift where Paul begins to teach what you are to do in response to what God has done. So 1 through 3, what God has done. 4 through 6, what you do in response to that. Chapter 4, we learn that Jesus gave gifts to his church, and those within the church are to use those gifts, and we are to no longer walk in the futile ways that we used to live in, and he goes on to describe the process of putting away the old and putting on the new, and so you put off lying and you put on speaking the truth, you put off stealing and you put on giving, you put off anger and you put on kindness. And then he wraps up that section by saying that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then halfway through chapter 5, he gives us a picture of what that submission looks like in our relationships. He talks about what it looks like in the church. He talks about what it looks like in the home. And he tells us how we are to live in the marriage relationship and he describes God-given roles between husband and wife. And in the midst of this teaching, when Paul is describing his husband-wife relationship, he pulls out this wonderful, surprising, mind-blowing, eternal truth that is a reason for everything that exists. And he calls it a profound mystery. Now, the word mystery here does not mean mystery in the sense of an Agatha Christie novel. It's not mystery in the sense of an episode of CSI or some whodunit. Rather, the word means something that was previously hidden that has now been revealed. So Paul is going to reveal something here that has always been, but has not always been understood. In the midst of a chapter on living the Christian life and human relationships, he's going to explain the profound depths of God's eternal plan. 
And what he does in verse 31 is he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. And so he goes all the way back to the beginning. And so we want to find out what was God talking about in Genesis chapter 2. If God's eternal plan depicted in marriage goes all the way back to the beginning, well, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. You can, you can turn there to Genesis 2. I have it on the screen, whichever, whichever you prefer, or both. Genesis chapter 2. Paul makes a connection with this chapter. We want to know what's in here. I'm going to read verses, starting in verse 5. This is creation. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God creates the man, and he gives him dominion, meaning he is in charge of creation. We see this dominion authority he has in that he is given all the creatures of the earth to name because he has the authority to do that because God has given him that authority. And so later on in the story, we discover that Adam is actually a type of Christ in that Adam was the Lord of the earth. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, you know what Luke calls him in the genealogy? He says, Adam is the son of God. So, he's a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He's the first creation. He's the first man God ever created. And he is the Lord of creation. Drop down to verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So God has all the animals parade in front of Adam, and Adam is giving names to all of them. And God doesn't do this just so Adam can name the animals. I mean, you know, you've got to have a label for different animals or it's going to get a little weird and hard to live. If you don't know the difference between an elephant and a lion, you know, you can do that. But it's not just that he could label the animals, it's so that Adam could discover something. There is not a suitable companion for him out of them all. God wanted Adam to see that he was not yet complete. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The totality of the human design was not accomplished in the creation of Adam. Rather, it was only complete after the creation of Eve, meaning that God's intention for male and female to be image bearers of God was the idea from the beginning. Eve was not an afterthought. And here we see a description of the first man and the first woman. The man was made from the dust of the earth, and the woman was made not from the dust of the earth, but from the man. I think that's significant. So the woman, in a sense, becomes an extension of the man. She is Adam, in a sense. He says it himself. Those are my bones, that's my flesh, right there standing in front of me. In fact, in the Hebrew, there's only a slight change to the word. The Hebrew for man is ish, and the Hebrew for woman is isha. It's, for, it's right to left, so it just adds the, the letter hey there at the end. Now, I think it's a good observation to make that she was taken from his side. I think that's to demonstrate equality with the man. She was not taken from his foot, for example. She was taken from his very side, and she is described as being his very flesh and bone. She, she was the very substance of Adam. God could have made her separately from the dust. He doesn't. He makes her from the man. So you have the man and the woman, and God gives the woman to the man. So you have this first marriage with God presiding over the ceremony, and the man and the woman are equal in their humanity, and they're equal before God, and they're equal as image bearers of God. And yet we discover they are given different roles. The woman is to be a helper to the man. Her greatest delight will be to serve him. They are equal, but they are given different roles. Adam is her Lord. Adam is the Lord of creation. We talk about this leadership as covenantal headship. That's the theological term. Adam is her covenantal head. And guess what? Eve, his helper, is Adam's body. She's there to help him, to serve him. He is her Lord, and she is his body, literally. Now there's a picture here I want you to grasp, because Paul quotes from Genesis 2 when he's talking about the male and female relationship, and then he's going to talk about something more profound than that, which is God and his relationship to us. If 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What do you mean, therefore? Therefore means because of this. Because of what? Because she is his body, she was taken from the man, therefore, covenant. More on that later. Stick that in the back of your mind. We're going to, I'm going to explain that a little more in depth. So God's design of the woman and her God-given role introduces the greatest human relationship there is, which is the marriage covenant. It's greater than friendship. It's greater than parents and child. It's the relationship of covenant. So this is the first couple and the first marriage, and Paul quotes this in Ephesians 5, but he doesn't just point to this and say, hey, let's look at marriage and look at the first couple, because remember, he's revealing a mystery here, and we're trying to discover the mystery. So this is the context of Genesis, and now when we go back to Ephesians 5, we want to find out the context of Ephesians 5. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Stop right there. God made the wife to submit and to serve. And God made the husband to love and to protect. He did not create two leaders in the home. He did not create a husband to be submissive to his wife. He did not create a wife to be overbearing and manipulative and controlling. God's design of the roles of both husband and wife were just as thoroughly calculated by God as were their differences. Now I realize this word submit is a bad word in our culture today. Submission communicates to our culture slavery and oppression and women's submission is seen as slavery which is an absolute lie and an absolute it's the opposite of what God has designed God has designed women submitting to their husbands to be freedom not slavery that's a whole other sermon so he says wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So Paul is addressing husband and wife relationships, and all of a sudden he's pulling this thing back, and he is showing us something far more profound. The husband, just like Adam, is the head of his wife, but more profoundly, just like Christ is the head of his church. So Adam is a picture of the head, which is also a picture of the husband and his role, which is meant to portray Christ and his role. 
And Eve is a picture of the body, which is also a picture of the wife and her role, which is meant to portray the church and her role. I've had a lot of hours to think about this. I'm going to take long pauses because I know it's hard to just let it all percolate down. I even have in my notes, long pause here. I want you to think about this. Paul quotes Genesis 2 for a reason. He's bringing Genesis 2 and the teaching of husbands and wives in the church together, and now he's pulling back and saying, this is really going to be about Christ and his bride. A different husband-wife relationship. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the wife's role is a picture of submission. The husband's role is a picture of sacrifice. And the wife's role in this relationship is the same as the church's role in her relationship to Christ. Just as God is calling you wives to submit to your husbands, what that really portrays is a picture of how the church, which is the bride of Christ, submits to her husband. We as the people of God are to love and serve Christ, and that is the big idea that a wife in her submitting and serving her husband portrays. I don't know why it's doing that. Got some sort of beat going here. Can you hear that? Okay, just gonna keep going. See, we didn't have a microphone last week, and it was so much simpler, wasn't it? <laughs> didn't have PowerPoint issues, no microphones making noise. The husband's role in the marital relationship is the same as Christ's role in his relationship to the church. Just as God is calling you husbands to lead and sacrifice for your wife. What it really is portraying is a picture of how Christ leads and sacrifices for his wife, which is the church. In other words, the marriage relationship that God has joined together is meant to glorify him. Not only as husband and wife grow together and become sanctified together, but when that relationship is lived out in its covenantal fullness, it glorifies God by putting on display his plan for the universe. Husband and wife, Christ and the church. The grand purpose for which everything exists. God and his people join together forever. So marriage then is a picture about God 
loving and saving a people, and that people serving and submitting to their God, and that was the plan of God from the very beginning. We are to be in a love relationship with him. Rather than religion being some slavery where you do a bunch of work in the hopes of going to heaven someday, which is how people perceive religion, Christianity, the truth, the entire plan of the universe is about a covenantal relationship between God and his bride. So that means rather than human marriage being an afterthought in God's mind, as if he's looking for some illustration, how can I communicate to the world what my love for my people is going to be like? I've got an idea. Marriage. As if he just was looking around for an illustration. No. God designed marriage to be a picture of his grand and eternal plan. So those ideas are swapped. Marriage becomes the illustration. Not God in Christ loving a church being the illustration. And this first couple that God formed in the garden was an illustration of what God was going to do in history. Join himself to a people in covenant, taking on humanity and seeking a bride. Paul continues in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself as their own bodies. You mean like Adam? For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So Paul not only points out the husband-wife relationship as being a one-flesh union where the husband is to consider his wife as his own body, but Jesus is joined to his covenantal partner, the church, in such a profound and glorious union that we are called his body. And do you know what the next verse is? Where Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2.24. And in the other text, in Genesis, we saw what the therefore was therefore. It was pointing back to Eve becoming, being brought out from the body of Adam. Well, what's Paul got the therefore here for? Look at the comparison between Genesis and Ephesians. Paul, Paul picks up on this Genesis account where it transitions from Eve being Adam's body into the covenant of marriage. And then he does the same thing by transitioning 
from the church being the body of Christ, being joined into the covenants that we have with Christ. Do you see the body language here? Do you see the covenant language here? So Adam was to love his wife as his own body. A husband, Paul says, is to love his wife as his own body because Christ loves his wife as his own body. We are the body of Christ. And so the mystery reveals is that this eternal plan of God was concealed in the second chapter of Genesis. The mystery revealed is that, is that God wasn't scrambling on ideas on what to do when he brought Jesus into the world and he thought, I've got an idea. We'll make it like a marriage. But rather, this was the plan of God from before the beginning. And the Christian church is called not only the bride of Christ, we are the body of Christ. That is profound indeed. And Christ loves her as he loves himself. Adam's body produced Eve, and Christ's crucified body produced the church. Just as Eve was born from the very body of Adam, so also the church is born from the very body of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. 17th century commentator Matthew Henry wrote this, Adam was a figure of him that was to come, for out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his bride was formed. When he slept the deep sleep of death upon the cross, in order to which his side was opened, and there came out blood and water. Blood to purchase his bride, and water to purify her unto himself. So, we are joined to Christ in covenant, and we are intrinsically bound to him by the Spirit, and we are not only his covenantal partner as his bride, but we could become an extension of Christ himself, his very body. And so this mystery that Paul reveals in Ephesians 5 is God's whole plan for the universe. God in covenant with his people forever. And your marriage is a picture of that. God coming to this earth to join himself to humanity, to gather his bride and to make them holy so that we, the church, become a companion suitable for him. God partakes of human nature, and through Christ we partake of the divine nature. If you can grasp this concept, you begin to see it all through Scripture. Remember in the Old Testament, Israel was Yahweh's unfaithful wife. They were covenant breakers. 
So the prophets would come and they say, you are a harlot, you are, you are going after other gods, you are going after the nations. And over and over again was this, was this unfaithfulness to God. And then after their exile for 400, or after their exile, 400 years pass, and Yahweh comes to his people. And when Jesus comes, John the Baptist introduces him and says, the friend, I'm sorry, he calls himself the friend of the bridegroom who rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. When Jesus was asked why his disciples didn't fast, he said, the wedding guests cannot mourn when the bridegroom is with them. When Jesus prays for us, his beloved bride, he prays that we would be one as he and his Father are one. How are we one? We are one through covenants. When Jesus prays that high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, I and them and them and me, and, and there is such a unity between Christ and his church. You don't know where Christ begins and the person ends. How is, how, how is it separated? It's not. It's covenantal. It's inseparable. It's indivisible. It's intimate, this kind of description. When God created Adam, when God created Eve, his plan was the incarnation. That's why he made them. That's why he made the marriage covenant. That's why he made them male and female. And that's why he made the universe. The very universe becomes the stage to portray this divine drama. It all exists for this. Our Heavenly Father, May this be a truth that resonates with this people. May this be a truth, Lord, not quickly forgotten as they go to their cars and drive home. But may it be something they think about on Tuesday and Friday and throughout the day and next weekend. May this be something, Lord, that they seek to understand more fully, to behold in its fullness, that they would discover the wonder that is there, the great wonder of your love for us. Please help us to take hold of these things. Please help us to be transformed by these things. Please help the marriages in our church, that when the husband is confronted with him being a representative of Christ, and the wife is confronted with her as being representative of how the church submits to Christ, there would be a desire, a willingness, an eagerness to live out those very roles. Please help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.